Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, Sunday morning, actually, it's almost midday. And um, I'm going to see if I can do, I may have to break this up into two parts with a busy schedule this uh, afternoon. But anyway, let me make a beginning. I want to talk today about, uh, you know, what, as they say, the greatest scholar you never heard of. You know, we you know the very famous person who's not so famous, but should be. And that's Rabbi Shmuel uh, of Modena. That's probably not a household word. Um, but they just published, re- republished now the first of his volumes of his famous uh, Shivas of the uh, Zara MS. Just now, the Swarm Chatter alerted me to when I ordered a copy from Lakewood, and I just got it in the mail. And uh, I find him a very interesting person, although, um, as I said before, probably somebody he never heard of. And the full work has not been done with him yet. There's a guy, if there's any grad student out there looking for a dissertation topic, I'm serious now. I think he'd be great, um, you know, if uh, if you want to sink your teeth into that. Um, I think it'd be great, unless there's somebody that did it. I don't know every grad student who's alive. You know, maybe somebody's already into that, but as far as I know, not. Today's uh, podcast is being sponsored uh, very generously by Gideon Miller in, in Houston. Uh, actually, a niece of mine just got married to a guy from Houston, and we uh, thank him for it. And without any further ado, we'll get down to work. I'm talking today about, uh, since last week I did pre-Kaddish, that made me think about Italy, and also the book came in the mail. Uh, we're talking about the last of the Italian Godolim. That's how I would put it. Who died in the early 1800s. There are, Italy is so interesting, precisely because there were these tiny communities, but with Torah stuff, it's a matter of quality, not quantity. Like I've said many times, you could have 20 families in a whole community, but if they were all knew how to learn, it might be a culturally significant community in Jewish history, as opposed to a community of 20,000 Amaratsim, in which they live there, but nothing's happening there. There's nothing to talk about in terms of culture. And we usually, when you do biographies, podcasts, things like that, you're interested whether you, the listeners, realize it or not, in culture, okay? We're interested in the political history, but and that's true, but ultimately, the significance or non-significance is, is important culture. Um, I don't know if you understand what I just said, but I think you do. Okay, especially in the from sense, there's something connected with Torah culture. What's there uh, significant about it? Now, um, you, um, that's how it is usually. Now, uh, from time to time, done people in Italy. Yeah, very small communities, but even a small community, once upon a time, would make yeshiva. Could be five, ten guys, twenty guys. So what? If there is a quality learning going on there, and they publish quality farm and things like that, then it makes it a landmark. You see. So in our case, uh, well, let me put it this way: Italy therefore produced. 
world-class significant scholars in the 1500s and in the 1600s and in the 1700s. And then they didn't. So the Gedolim coming out of Italy in those three centuries, I mean, people that they may have been in small towns, some larger, some smaller, but you've heard of them. Uh, and then there are those, um, how should I put it, that you never heard of because Italy disintegrated in the 1800s, which is the fate of certain other communities. It just disintegrated. Comes to mind Prague and Bohemia, which once upon a time was a big headquarters of Torah learning and production of importance of art. And then it disintegrated. You have that in Jewish history sometimes. Therefore, one can never be 100% uh, comfy and say, well, because I live in a place like I live in Baltimore, Maryland, there's a lot of yeshivas, and this and the other, it's always going to be like, you never know. You never know. Uh, you know, Lakewood may one day be uh, nothing. You don't know how, how what the future lies. So you do the best you can in the present. Italy is a classic example of that. The Jews in Italy actually were better off politically and so forth in the 1800s, but the Yiddishkeit disintegrated. And there's no important scholarship um, in that regard. Okay? That itself, in my opinion, is just very interesting. Now, I said the 1500s, the 1600s, and the 1700s, or the 18th century, as we call it. Uh, the 18th century is a time when Italy was still a collection of different states. And if you're interested in what I'm saying, just Google Italy in 1796. You'll see a map of a uh, color map of uh, all the different states in there. And you always have to cut, deduct by half, because half of Italy was called the Kingdom of Naples, which was ruled by Spain or Spanish kings, the Bourbons, and no Jews were there. So when you're talking about Italy, you're talking about north of the Kingdom of Naples. And we've talked about Venice from time to time, and we've talked about the Papal States from time to time, which is the kingdom ruled by the Pope. And you had, you know, from different places, famous uh, communities, famous Rabbonim, let's put it that way, even in these places which are not so simple to live in. Um, Venice was an important Malcolm Tower, Padua. But in addition to the Papal States, which is a big chalik of Italy, if you look at the map, as I just said before, take the trouble to Google map of Italy in 1796, because that's what I just did, you'll see all these different Medinas. So uh, the Papal States runs all the way through Italy. And without boring you with the details, actually acquired some new Karka in the uh, 18th century, uh, including Ferrara, which was a bummer, because that had been a big Malcolm Torah. And in the north, you have a couple of Medinas, like I say, the Republic of Venice and the Duchy of Milan, and uh, the Kingdom of Piedmont, okay? But there are also these little countries, these little duchies, that were independent states. Uh, they had Jewish communities. Even there's like a fly speck, and one of them is Modena, or as you all call it, Modena, right? Uh, Modena, which was a dukedom, a duchy, and was a separate country for many, many centuries. And um, there were Jews there, and they had a ghetto like elsewhere in Italy, and depending on who the duke was, sometimes things are better, sometimes things are worse. And the reason I'm mentioning is because 
Modena, which is sort of like in the belly button of northern Italy, if I can use that expression. I don't want to overwhelm you with little details. Um, Modena had Yeshiva, maybe two or three. And Yeshiva Gadol, Yeshiva Katana. And even though the community's not large, it's a very pretty town. I'm stretching my memory. When we were in Italy, it was about five, six years ago, seven years ago, I did one of these trips. I think we stopped for a short time in Modena. But to be perfectly honest, I wasn't focused on our hero today, Rishmala Cohen. Uh, I remember a very pretty square, but then we mainly headed off for Ferraris. It's on, on the way. Ferraris is where the Pachigisig was. Um, but Modena is, 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 like I say, a separate kingdom or dukedom. And the only problem is for the Jewish community there, not just the local anti-Semitism, because the dukes more or less took care of them, you know, more or less. I mean, there was a ghetto. They had all these harsh rules and things like that. It was a Catholic country. The full uh, laws of the church were applied. But, you know, Jews were able to, to, to live a Jewish life there. In a certain screwball way, a ghetto was a good thing. Even though I shouldn't say that, but, you know, then you know you're all Jewish neighborhood. And there were six or seven shoals there in that small Jewish neighborhood. Italy is just Italy. And um, the only problem is it was always in wars. Uh, if you know a little bit about the Duchy of Munda in the 17th, let's say the 18th century, during the lifetime of our hero, um, comes to mind, he was born in 1723. So in the 1740s, when he was late teens and 20 and so, uh, Munda was a football. It was the War of the Austrian Succession, which is too complicated to explain to you guys. And suffice it to say that there were armies battling up and down in northern Italy, the Habsburg forces on the one hand and the Bourbon forces on the other. And uh, Modena was, you know, occupied by this one and then occupied by that one. And whenever there's a war going on or there's a military occupation, it ain't good for the population and it really ain't good for the Jews. So that's the kind of situation you had more than one place in Italy. And the B'nai Yisrael simply had no choice but to make the best of it. And to try to keep the learning and things like that going on. So I would regard Modena in the 18th century, 17th, 18th century, as a fairly from place. Mainly due to the fact that they had yeshiva there. Maybe even more than one. Now, our hero was the son of the Rav there. He lived to be an old man. lived to be in the late 80s. Um, his father liked the Rav. And then when the father died, his brother was the Rav. And when the brother died, he was the Rav. So it's like a dynasty, get it? <clears throat> uh, so when he was born in 1723, Italy was very old-fashioned, especially Yiddishkeit-wise. Uh, but as the 18th century progressed, I would say things got a little more, more modernish. And by the time our hero took over, and he was that was in 1782 when his brother died, so he was the rabbi there roughly from, in his 60s and his 70s and his 80s. He was an old man. You hear what I just said? When he was the Rav, and therefore the Rosh Hashiva in Modena, he was not a young man. He was in his 60s, and he was in his 70s, and he was in his 80s. I think he died at the age of 88. Um, so young, you don't have all the energy you used to have. Well, he had the energy. And he ran into... Uh, all of modernity had him, you know, hit the community like a big time. 
and he had, I guess you would say, the misfortune of living in interesting times. And he died during Napoleon. He died in 1811. So, let me approach it this way. Here you have somebody that was born in the old school. Um, Mom is Italian. In the belly button of North Italy. And in the old-fashioned Italian-Jewish sense, which means the Italian type Haskalah, which is quite different than the Moses Mendelssohn Haskalah, as we shall see, because he's a player in all that. And it certainly is different than what we would call the 19th century Haskalah associated with Napoleon, right? And the Sanhedrin, because our hero was a member of Napoleon Sanhedrin, or at least he was invited to attend. Uh, so that's why it's a perfect, if you study his life, you see that the word Haskalah has, is very nuanced, and you can't use it widely because it applies to very different things. And there's, if I can use the term, the from Haskalah, I mean the very from Haskalah on the one hand, and then there's the lesser from Haskalah, and then there's the modernish anti-from Haskalah. And our hero was, a, was an excellent example of the first, which is what the rabbis in Italy in general were. I've mentioned many times that many went to college, had PhDs, MDs, and that kind of stuff. I mean, Gedolim, people were Shalas and Shubas. Our hero did not go that route. Uh, he, as far as I can tell, spent his whole life in Modena. Um, his father was a Rav. That means that, and he and he was obviously a Balkisher and a, frankly a, a genius. Um, he was interested in learning, so that worked out. And he learned, you know, like I say, in the local yeshiva, which was run by his father and then his brother, from the time he was born. And I bet you money, the yeshiva was probably a block away from his house, maybe less, because it was small ghettos, you see. So it's just an interesting way of living. And our hero was perfectly satisfied to live his whole life in the Dalai of what I just described. You see? And in a certain way, his life was seamless because imagine a guy who's growing up, you know, he gets his uh, the local cheder in, in Italy, which was a Italian masculic cheder. You'll see what I mean later, I hope. And... Um, then at one point when you come bar mitzvah and you enter Yeshiva Gedola, again, a block away, <laughs> and you just sit and learn. And if you're good, you pick up information, you, you come out of Talmud Chacham. And as time went on and on, I mean, you got married and so forth, although we see he didn't have any children, unfortunately. Uh, he, you, That's your job. You become a Magad Shir, let's put it that way, in that Yeshiva. How many people are in the yeshiva like I'm talking about? I would guess 20-some boys. That's my guess. It's not big. Probably 20-something. You know, along those lines. But if you think about it, you know, that's enough. And uh, provided everybody's plugging away. It didn't, the yeshiva was a full-time business. It did not include college. You understand? The yeshiva modern was a full-time yeshiva. And uh, that's not how you did your house calling that way. Like in America, half a day this, half a day that, none of that. And uh, and it wasn't like in Padua where, you know, you, you went full-time for college. So in Monday, you know, you you, you, you plugged away, those who did. Um, some of the boys in the yeshiva would be there when they're 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, something like that, and then go off to work. A few of the guys are more, 
you know, intense, and they will become Dayanim or something like that, or Bunim later on. You follow? And that was the system, how it worked in Italy. Um, your Limuri Chol you picked up on your own because everybody had Limuri Chol of one kind or another. That's what makes Italy kind of interesting. Uh, as I said, you'll see. So here's a guy that's living in a community. I mean, it wasn't fun to be there in the 1740s when the War of the Austrian Succession was going on. But as far as I can tell, um, in terms of my knowledge of history, I don't think there were any other wars after that uh, in Italy in the middle years of the 1700s. The Seven Years' War did not affect Italy. So um, things were pretty quiet, which is a good thing. So if you're talking about the 1750s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and so forth, is a quiet. So that means that our hero could spend his time, like we would say today, full, full all day in base matters, full-time magashir. Since he didn't have children, you can already understand even better that he would throw himself really into the learning and the yeshiva life because the guys he was makarv, the people who came to meet him of his, through students and talking and learning and that, that became like the children. Do you, you see what I'm saying? That became the people. So here's a person who had no kids, but interacted all of his life with young people. That's my point, um, which is just interesting. Now, um, that's why he's going to call his Sefer Zeramis, as we'll see. Uh, so here you are living this kind of life of Torah Voda uh, in your in your small neighborhood. Like I say, the whole get is a few blocks. In those few blocks are six synagogues, plus a yeshiva gadol and a couple of yeshiva katanas, I think. That's a, or a couple of haters, Italian type haters. And there you have, and it's a very pretty area if you've ever been in Modena. All those little cities are gems. Really, you know, architectural gems. And there you have it. You can spend your whole life like that. Now, uh, when, as I said before, his father was there, and then when the father died, his older brother took over. When the brother died, they elected him to be the Rav, the Av Basin. I bet you, not to, first of all, it's a dynasty. They knew the family. Second of all, he's probably cheap. He has no kids. You see, he's probably paid him a little. I know how these kehillas work. <laughs> Take it from me. Now, um, but it was the truth. And so, he became the Rav during 1782. Um, without boring you with the details, the the, by that time, they're under the Habsburgs, uh, the House of Habsburg Este. And uh, he was there for, the rabbi there for about 30 years. As I said before, from 1782 till his death, almost in 1812, he died a year before. It would have been 30 years. So he was there 29 years. Now, um, those years were years of storm and stress. Because... Uh, maybe from 1782 on, you already had the Moses Mendelssohn effect. Uh, Mendelssohn died in 1785. Some of his innovations uh, already popped up around that time, as we shall see. Um, well, I'll get right into it. Broadly speaking, the time that he was the Rav, which is the 1780s, the 1790s, and the first decade of the 18 hundreds were times of big changes and wars and upheavals. In the 1780s, um, you had the Haskalah rising of the non-Italian variety. Uh, and I mean specifically 
not so much Moses Mendelssohn, who is always very circumspect and very um, uh, sensitive and delicate in how he operated. But Mendelssohn had a friend who he inspired, which is Naftali, Naftali Hertz Wesley. And Naftali Hertz Wesley, Wiesel, was actually a from guy, but was stupid. Sometimes a stupid fool is like a bull in a china shop. And you don't think you're doing anything wrong. They can make more trouble than a bad person. Uh, Naftali Hertz Wesley was a Moscow. He was a collaborator with um, Mendelssohn in writing the Mendelssohn Komish. He was a Shemr Shabbos and a Shemr Teremitsis. And there are from people that are fans of his Adayamazeh, including Samson Raphael Hirsch. And, uh, but like I said before, he was kind of stupid. And he published a famous thing, uh, what was it called again? Divri Shalvemis or something, in the early 1700s, in which he said, meaning he was just shooting his mouth off. Like a, Today we have people like this have blogs, get it? Is that the world is full of blogs. Some of these guys are smart, some are stupid beyond belief. Doesn't matter. You got a blog, you just shoot your mouth off, you see? So, um, he was one of those types, and he wanted to change, say, reform the Chinuch. Now remember, Wesley lived in Berlin and in Northern Europe, so he was really writing for the Jews in places like Prague, Poland, and so forth. And his idea was that the, that the uh, if I remember correctly, that the Jewish education be reorganized the first in elementary, you have a very thorough uh, English education. And then when you're older and able to do it, then you go for your Lamuni Kodesh. You understand? And Gemara should be reserved for like a few who intend to become Rabbanim and something serious. And that way, you'll have a graded kind of curriculum. In other words, one of the main Haskalah um, features in every era when there was a Haskalah, in every era in Jewish history, was the notion of trying to tweak the Chinuch. Now, the fact that Chinuch needs tweaking has always been around. Remember the Maral criticized the system and the Kliyakar and people like that, the Yeshiva system of the Ashkenazim where you start learning uh, Tosis when you're four years old and that sort of thing, uh, you know, and the neglect of Tanakh and all that kind of That's been a, Those kind of criticisms have been around forever, the neglect of Mishnayis, whatever. <laughs> And everybody knows that the Mishnah says, and then when you're 15, go for Gemara. The notion of a graded curriculum is an old idea. It's often been neglected and often not neglected. Saints Rave Large, what's an educationist critic, as we know, things like that. So this guy, Naftali Hertz Wesley, is coming out of this uh, school of thought. He was no heavy hitter, believe it to me, you know, take it from me. He was no great Talmud Chacham or anything like that. Yeah, you know, learned a little bit. Learned a little bit, a little bit under Yonas Ahibshitz. A little bit. Even though, but, you know, he knew Europe at that time was full of all kind of education, reform ideas. This is the Enlightenment. And he thought he might adapt it for the Judaism. And so instead of a business he used to see around where kids learned strictly by rote, and from a very young age he memorized a little bit of Gemara and a little of this, and therefore it's all turned off, and he saw that as soon as they are 13... They hit the road, and they leave, and they never look at it again. Same problem like we used to have in America with the bar mitzvah system and all that, you know, before the day school started. And sometimes day schools are like that also. So anyway, coming out of that whole milieu, he offered, he wanted to completely, um, as they say, uh, what's the right word, foreground 
the Limudi Chol, and the, the Limudi Chol should come later on. Now, he sent this all over the place. Believe me, the note of you and everybody blasted him to hell. Oh my goodness. All the way. There's a whole article about it in the uh, Carliner thing, base, Iron Beast Throw, whatever it's called, and so forth. Um, because to them, he's trying to uproot the Torah. Which, I'll say it again, was not his intention, but that would have been the effect. He wasn't bad, he was dumb. Uh, but what's interesting is that he said, why don't we do like Italy? In Italy, they've always had some kind of muscular education, and it's not a problem. So all I'm saying is, we Jews, Ashkenazi Jews in the north of Europe, should do something along the same lines. Maybe not exactly, something along the same lines. One of the play Now, he lived in um, Hamburg in Berlin, uh, which is right next to the Austrian Empire, the Habsburg Monarchy. That included Prague and Bohemia and all the way to know to be who it was. But it also included part of Italy. In other words, the Austrian Empire, the Habsburg Monarchy, included some areas of what we call today Italy, especially Trieste, which is a port in the Adriatic. There was a famous Jewish community over there, and that Jewish community was part Italian, part this, part that. And when they got these letters, they didn't react like the Nodebuta. Oh, how can you have any Lemurichol and this and that and the other is terrible? Because they were used to having some amount of secular education in the curriculum, as we do in America with the day schools. Not exactly the same way. And so uh, the community of Trieste, they say like this, let's write to uh, Yishmael Kona Mudden, our hero. He's the uh, Moshe Feinstein around here. He's, he's the Poseg. He's a normal guy. He's an Italian Jew. He himself had a Lemurichol education. He knew Italian quite well, which is true. Um, he even wrote some poems in Italian. I'm not sure exactly what that's about, but I remember uh, seeing that. He wrote, you know, poems in Italian. He what? Listen very closely, I'm about to tell you. He was a modern guy in the sense that he was a sh fully shaved. If you want to have some fun or have a little bit of a culture shock, you go online and just go try to hunt down Rabbi Shmola Cohen of Modena or the Shalstruz RMS and look for the images. And eventually you get a picture of him and he basically didn't have a beard. He had a very tiny little something underneath the chin is it, uh, uh, by the throat. Basically he was a clean shaven, which I told you before was also true of the Shemesh uh, Tzedak, whatever his name is, the Marpurgo. You know, these are Godoli Israel who were poskim. Um, but it goes to show you that, um, you know, uh, that acculturated they were. Um, but don't make the mistake of thinking just because the guy doesn't have a beard, he doesn't have to learn. You got it all backwards. It's a little bit like the Litvisha where when I was a kid, in which very few people had beards, you saw a guy coat totally clean shaven. It don't mean he doesn't have to learn. Some of these guys could blow you away in learning, right? The beard has nothing to do with it. Now times have changed, but I'm just saying, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I'm talking about. So in Italy, you had a whole bunch of rabbis in the 18th century who, because of the fashion or because of the culture or whatever, you wouldn't think that they don't look from to you. It's, it's kind of weird, including our hero. Um, but they knew a lot. They were uh, Gedolius role, and they were Tzadikim and Hasidim too. So you can't judge a book by the cover from nowadays. Uh, anyway, so the community of Trieste said, let's write to him, he's a normal guy. When I say normal guy, he's a big Talmud Chacham, but he's not an extreme right-winger, not an extreme left-winger. He just calls like he sees it, and he knows Kol Tarakula. And by this time, he was in his 60s, and he had a reputation for doing Kol Tarakula, and I would say that that's true. So anyway, 
They wrote to him. What do you think of this guy? Uh, meanwhile, while this was going on, Naftali Hurts Wesley got such a blowback that he wrote a second pamphlet after Dirry Shalmem is called Ralph Tubal of AC Throw, in which he sort of like backtracked a little bit, but not really. No, he said, I'm not out to hurt anybody. I'm a from guy myself. But I think you should have the Limune, if, if, if you don't foreground the Limune call and put it before the Limune Kodesh, then it should be side by side. Something like that. I haven't seen these things in a long time. And they sent it to our hero, the community, and he wrote a very, very interesting letter back. I'm almost tempted to read it verbatim. It's about two pages long. And I first saw it many, many years ago in the Simcha Asaf, uh, when his Makar Latola Finical Yisrael, uh, in the search part, I think it was, for the second. And uh, it's really uh, uh, wonderful. And it goes to show you the difference in, in, in what you mean by Haskala A and Haskala B. And I think I'll read a little bit of it. And, by the way, his Hebrew is wonderful, because in Italy they taught Dittuk and Ksiva and letter writing and Ivrit, alongside Gemara and all the rest of it. But when did they do that? So he says, Hena Yomi This is our hero, Rabbi Shmuel Kohen of Modena, writing back like a tshuva, you might say, or a letter to Trieste. And he says, Hema Yomi Kribulafonai Shnei Ksiv Maboim Trieste. I got the two letters. Question is about the curriculum. So these are two pamphlets I, I, I got from Trieste, from our uh, from the what the villain Naftali Hertz of Wesley. And he's suggesting them how to do the curriculum. Guidance for the teachers for the curriculum. And since there are a lot of uh, on this whole question of the pre curriculum for from school, do I agree or disagree? But before I express my humble opinion, uh, I would talk in general terms. I would give my general opinion on the proper curriculum for Jewish students. And then I'll address what this guy wrote in his two pamphlets. And he goes on to say, I think it's wonderful. I mean, I'll just take the trouble to read from it. Not all of it. When we approach the subject, you can't get around the fact that the Mishnah says that there's a graded situation over here. So in other words, I don't agree with the Ashkenazim do in Northern Europe, that they kind of skip Tanakh and, you know, Chumash uh, really, and that kind of said go right to Gomorrah. The Mishnah does say in Ovas, Ben Chumash Lamekar, Ben Esla Mishnah, Ben Tesvav, the Talmud. Okay? And it makes sense, our hero says. Baruch Hashem Tiberbam. This Mishnah makes sense. You, you feed a child according to its absorption level. You have to go, you know, with a graded sense, as the curriculum is all about, according to age. Notice there's a first grade mentality and a second grade mentality and a third and fourth, fifth grade mentality. 
and you don't teach a kid in the first grade something that's appropriate for the seventh grade, you know. The Latinic, Manikim If you have a baby, you nurse him, you give him milk, you don't give him food, which can hurt him. And anyway, it's necessary to build a good foundation for the later learning. First, you have to learn Chomish. So in other words, the idea behind this is not to delay the learning of Gemara, but to lay a foundation for it. Like the Maral says, right? And he quotes them. Uh, and it reminds me of something in the Chobos Alvavos, where he says, Be careful of Hanhoga Beli Madrega. You get it? In other words, when you go, Beli Hadroga. When you do anything in life, don't jump ahead. Do everything step by step. Right? If you want to light a candle, uh, you know, an oil wick candle, um, if you pour in too much oil, you put out the candle, <laughs> right? You, you, you hear the word? You, you pour in too much oil on it, it'll overflow and put out the candle. So that's a nice marshal for saying that even though the shaman is good, but it's got to be the right time and the right amount. But the repashen lismuch noflin b'mine geru anal l'asem nar kitanu gemar b'aschol satsam lilan gadol halor rabbeinu tam. I mean, so therefore, a non-graded curriculum just because you're relying on Rabbeinu Talmud says everything's in the Gemara, that's wrong. Okay? It goes into all this a little bit. When Rabbeinu Tam is talking about people learning how to learn. But Rabbeinu Tam, I don't believe, he says, was arguing on the idea of first you're five years old, and then then you're ten years old, and then you're fifteen years old. But that means, he says, that if you're learning Chomish and that kind of stuff at, starting at five, and the Mishnah at, at ten, you're not learning anything else. You're not learning any English subjects. You see? Uh then you don't want to mess up the the kid's mind with secular studies. Ben Chamesh la Mikra, Ben Eser la Mishnah, and so forth, and just that. Okay? Because the English subjects, the secular subjects, will erase the Hebrew stuff in there. Now, this is not exactly true, as we all know, you and I know, but that, that's how he saw it long ago. He's using the old technology. Imagine if I was using, uh, printing a page with the old-fashioned printing press. So I line up all the letters, and I press it down on the page, and now I have a page of a certain text. But then I go and rearrange the letters, and press it down, then the, the second time killed the first page, ended with a gobbledygook. So to him, you're learning the, let's say the Chumash and the Mishnah, and then you're learning uh, arithmetic and other things like that. So the arithmetic will crush and make gobbledygook out of what you're learning. Uh, I, what about Derech Eretz Kabbalah Torah? See, he says, it does. Derech Eretz does not mean what Weasel said, and what Sam Sam Hirsch adopted as his slogan. It doesn't mean secular studies. 
It's talking about good manners, as we say. So that's a different story, not not secular studies. So what they're really saying was, first you do the the the, the from stuff, and then after you finish all that, then you begin the secular education, which in those days usually meant going into a life of business. That's the old-fashioned, traditional Jewish mahalach. First, you, the, the, the children's uh, youth is devoted exclusively to Torah. After the youth, then you have the secular parts. You hear that? Not the way that we do it, in, for example, in America today. He's talking about the old way that used to be in the Middle Ages. And then after they grow up and have learned the Torah stuff, if they're not going to go into, you know, being a Rosh Hashiva or a rabbi or something like that, they give them their secular knowledge that they need for a life of business. And it's then you're satisfied, it's good enough that in their new life, let's say after they're 15 years old or 20 years old, whatever it is, and they're now opening a store or a business, or a merchant thing, or something like that, they'll be covetous in the Torah. Minigavah's Torah, he gam came. And this is the minig we've always had in Minigavah's Torah, you know. It was the minig of, of our Avos, we regard that as Torah. <coughs> okay? So he laid it out very nicely. And then he goes and attacks this guy for messing with that curriculum. Um... And I'll skip all that. You know, he blasts them and this and that and the other. Uh, and then he goes on and says, "This is how, um, this is how we do it in Italy." Because you see, the truth of the matter is, he says, we in Italy don't really follow exactly this curriculum either. We do have a limited amount of Limuri Chol in our education system in the Chadarim and those kind of schools that we have in Italy. El Denir Shashas even though the Gemara sounds, the Gemara Babasar sounds like you just have pure learning and nothing but, but that was in the old days, he says. That's when the Jews lived in places like Babylonia in districts that everybody was Jewish. So you could get along with each other without the secular knowledge. And you had mass areas in which you could just learn, uh, I mean, you already knew Aramaic. So this would be something similar, I don't know if he realized it or not, to the Jews living in Eastern Europe where everybody spoke Yiddish. You understand? So you didn't need a secular education to just start up in business because everybody you're going to be talking to is going to talk in Yiddish. But you see, in Italy it wasn't like that. But we live among the Goyim, and he's talking about Italy, where the communities are tiny. We're scattered all over the place. It's necessary to give our children in the haters part of the time a secular education in terms of reading and writing. Uh, that's Italian. Bekriya Bekseva, reading and writing, Kahogan Ashura, properly, 
Kadesha Morgan begot Nusam, so that they'll you know, have that early in life. It'll be, you know, straight on that. They'll be fluent in it. Because to have a secular education of that type uh, will be hard to acquire later in life. Okay? Which is just interesting. In other words, this is the Avos that it was in Italy. Okay? So, necessity compels us Italian Jews to devote a certain amount of the day in the curriculum for Limune Chol, in the way I just described. So you'll be able to make a parnosa, you'll be you'll be a normal person when you go out there because what does it mean to be a businessman in Italy? You have to do a game, you have to make trips, you have to do this now. You gotta you gotta be able to read and write the language of the country. And even person who's gonna spend his life as a rabbi or a Rosh Hashiva, it's good to know Italian. Knows it helps. So here he's using the word derech heretz, talking the sense of derech heretz, the local culture, like we say in America, the secular studies. But that's not what this is. This uh, Wesley was writing about, and but not his way in which you devote a significant amount of time in the day to the secular studies. Therefore, if you ask my opinion, we should stick to the good old Italian system, which is old. And then he gives you what it is. The beginning, like first grade, you teach him reading, Hebrew, right? With a few points of diktuk. You know, notice you don't overdo it, but you give them a little bit of the, of the necessity to read and write Hebrew correctly. And then what they used to do in the old haters, little kids, once they could read and write Hebrew, they would do the Parsha Shavuah, and translate the Parsha into Italian, like we say in America, translate the Parsha into English. You know, and you did that. And then at the right time, you introduce the Mishnahis and Gemara. But you don't drop learning Parsha Sashua with Rashi. And you take 30 minutes of the day, or maybe 60 minutes of the day. And you teach them the three R's reading, writing, arithmetic um, in Italian. So in other words, if the day, I imagine, sorry, if the day was, um, oh, this is the old hater days. I mean, you know, probably put eight or ten hours into the uh, curriculum, you know, into learning every day. So let's say it was eight hours. So seven hours is Limude Kodesh, one hour or less even is Limude Chol. I will Ikra's man believe in Mishnah Gemara, Umad's man b'mikra. But the rest of the curriculum is Mishnah and Gemara and a little bit of Chumash. Because obviously, to understand Mishnah and Gemara takes more time and more learning. That was what you learned in elementary school, what I just described. And he's saying this was how they taught, this is how they ran the, the Chinuch in it, the Frum Chinuch in Italy in the 1400s, the 1500s, the 1600s, and the 1700s. Right? 
And then when the kid hits bar mitzvah, you check him out. And you see he's not prospering in learning. Okay, very European. Then they, they did a lamasul, then he was tracked. Basically, if you're bar mitzvah and you're not interested in the learning and it's boring, it's not working, you stop, you leave school, you got to work in one way or another, okay? In business or something like that. But you make sure that there's a shear, you know, that you attend every day or whatever it was. There's a kavisidim Torah, obviously on a very simple level, because you're dealing with a kid 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, but there is a kavisidim Torah. On the other hand, it's light, you know, it's light. At that point after 13, so I guess we'd say when you're finishing elementary school, roughly speaking, then you find out if the kid has any interest in um, in any secular studies, maybe as a natural interest in math, maybe as a natural interest in language or history. So, so basically they would say like this, now you're 13, 14, 15, if you're interested now, you get your your um, heavier um, exposure to whatever secular subjects interest you naturally. And if you're, on the other hand, a learner, you you plunge into learning the 24 uh, books. And at that point, after you've already done your rote learning, and your Mishnah is all the rest, and now you're 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, so you plunge most of your time into Shas and Poskim, but you devote some part of the day to Dikduk. Isn't that interesting? So in other words, you'll be able to read and write and express your ideas in Torah. Well, that's why all the Italian rabbis write very well. And you spend most of your time on Shasim which is Shas and Poskim. If you're a Maimonidean type, and you're interested in uh, mastering secular subject one time or another, so you do it. So they had a very free and open way that the guy who's 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, he may be interested in the career as a Dayan, or Rosh Hashiva, or Rav, and they have plenty of those, and he may be interested personally in philosophy, or mathematics, or in history, or in Italian. Okay, so you, knows, you pick that up on your own, Nobody bothered you. So that's, so now let's put it this way. That is the Italian Muscillic model, which is basically a from model. Uh, it's more liberal than in, uh, you know, than in Israel today or something like that. On the other hand, it's it's always assuming that the Iker is the Torah part and the secular stuff, which is nothing to laugh at, you know, should get serious attention, but only after you've had your elementary school, which was, as you see over here, 95% uh, Limunic Kodesh, or maybe even more, okay? So once you had, so they had this idea that if you get a kid in the elementary and you raise him this way, then when there's a teenager and afterwards, if the person is interested personally in Limunic so they didn't have like we have in America that everybody has high school and whether you like, whether you're interested in trigonometry or not, you want to take it, or whether you're interested in history or not, you're going to take it. But rather, it was a much more organic type situation. If this person happens to be into philosophy, until he'll he'll be self-taught. So they're not talking about the type of people that we encountered in other podcasts who went to university. Uh, he's talking about the regular Italian uh, Jew who was an intellectual, 
you kind of picked it up on your own, you know, for better or worse, right? For better or worse, and 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 there you have it. Now, um, I think it's very interesting and very revealing kind of letter, and it goes to show you the system that they had in Italy. Uh, so he's criticizing the uh, Moses Mendelssohn, Naftali Wesley uh, type of Haskalah, um, because Haskalah means it's something other than Jessica Margamar Gamara. In Italy, they have, I think, Jessica Margamar Gamara, because you see, it's a question of priorities and how much time you, uh, you know, uh, devote to it, and so on and so forth. Now, that indicates that already starting in his first years as a rabbi, when he was in the 60s, you start to have these kind of issues. Uh, that people want more Haskalah in the sense of Morley Munichol, all the rest of it. Uh, about six years or seven years into his rabbinical career, when he was his mid-60s, I guess, a little older, uh, the French Revolution breaks out. Now you might say, what's that got to do with anything? Uh, the French Revolution took place in France. I'm talking about Italy. That is true. But... When the French Revolution broke out, all of Europe freaked out. And all the countries in Europe kind of ganged up to attack France. And the French had their Marseillaise moment. And they raised huge armies and beat back everybody. And then the French went on the offensive. The French revolutionaries went on the offensive. And they started to conquer Europe. No, Europe didn't beat them. France beat Europe. That's called the French Revolutionary Wars of the 1790s. One of the parts of that was General Napoleon Bonaparte, who became famous in the middle of the 1790s, even though he was, in his 20, he was in his 20s, by leading a victorious army and conquering Italy. Which means Napoleon led an army into Italy, and he started bang, 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 bang. He took out this army, he took out that army, he took out another army, he kept beating the Austrians and this and that and the other, and he was unstoppable. One of the things places he took over was our headquarters, the Duchy of Modena. Okay, it's one of the areas. He took over a lot more than that. And the French Revolution was pretty radical. Uh, the Tovulara. And um, that's going to affect the Jews of Italy pretty heavily. And our hero in particular. But now I have to stop here for a while because I have to go somewhere. I'll, I'll hope to pick this up a little bit later. Okay, I had a little break there. Now I'm going to try to remember where I left off, I think. My point was, with the conquest of uh, Italy by Napoleon, so that means, listen closely, that um, from 1796 until his death in 1811, uh, Modena, which is an Italian town, was part of France. Because in one way or another, without boring you with the details, they set up the Cisalpine Republic, this, that, and the other. One way or another... From then on, Italy, especially the northern half of Italy, was annexed to France in one fashion or another. So, And Napoleon, within a few years, became the emperor, and he was the guy in charge. So that means for our hero, from the age of, uh, let's see now, if he's born in 1723, from the age of 73 to 88, the last 15 years of his life, he was a subject of France, a French citizen. Uh, it's a little funny, but I say that because that has profound consequences. Until then, um, especially before the French showed up, uh, it was the old Italy, and therefore the old Yiddishkeit. Now, when the French took over, 
So they did a good and a bad thing. And this is a key element of the whole story of modernity in Jewish history. The French abolished all the anti-Semitic laws. They destroyed the walls of the ghetto. So from now on, a Jew didn't have to live in the ghetto. He could live wherever he want. But there was a quid pro quo. The French, not overnight, but nevertheless clearly, said, okay, now that we're changing these laws against you, um, what are you going to do to show you're worthy of it? In other words, how are you going to become more French? Shall you say, more secular? This is more or less what happened. Which means for a rabbi of the old school, like we're talking about, a God of Israel, the old type, it's like a shock. Get it? All of a sudden, since the state was now secular, it's all part of France, the base didn't then have any power over the people. You know, they took away the coercive power, the autonomous coercive communities. The state, the, the, the killer didn't tax the people and pay to the government. The government got it directly, um, you know, from the people like they do in modern states. Uh, the Jewish religion now had to take into account civil law. So, for example, when are you married? When the rabbi says, we do Chubikadushin? Or when the French state says, you did a civil ceremony, now you're married. What's even worse is, when are you divorced? When you get a get? Or when you have a civil uh, divorce, um, according to the laws of the French state? And so forth and so on. So, for a, a big rov like he was, he had unprecedented challenges. Things that you and I are used to, and it's nothing new to us, were brand new at that time. And so the Jew living in the modern secular state, that's, we've all lived like that all of our lives. That was a radical new Messias, because it was the French Revolution and the aftermath that introduced for the first time ever in history the concept of a secular state in which religion is not a key element, except that France was kind of anti-Semitic, so the Jewish religion was to some degree a key element. And people like our hero had to try to def explain the official position of Judaism to face the Numitius. I hope I made that clear. <clears throat> so this was not... So somebody was a big rough, and by the time I'm talking about the 1780s, 1790s, early 1800s, when he was only in his 60s, he had already been giving sheer a long time. And even if he wasn't the official rov, you can be sure he was a big, big mocker in the halacha stuff of the kehoah. And... His reputation was already known as a, a, a special Talmud Chacham. And I would say that if you lived in Italy in the late 1700s already, and afterwards, off the top of my head, I can only think of two gedolim, world-class gedolim, you could send your Shilas to. One was our hero, Rishmol of Modena. I can't think of any other. And the other one would be the Chidob. The Chidob became, you know, after a life of wandering and being of a shulch and this and that and the other, the Chidah became the Rav, the Abbasin in Livorno. No, he picked the richest scale to take a job. I don't blame him. To pick, he picked the richy rich city. Um, okay, so <clears throat> the Chidah is a world-class figure. So if you're a Jew or a rabbi or a Basin and you have some problem, and it's the 1770s, 1780s, 1790s, early 1800s, those 40-year period, let's say, or approximately, maybe a little more, who do you deal with your shilas to? <clears throat> right? If you send them abroad, 
maybe, but they probably don't understand the Italian Matthias. But if you send it to Livorno, you're dealing with the Rido, he's been around. If you send it to our hero, he's mom's born and bred in Italy. He understands life totally. And, you know, there's he. it's like an American posking for Americans, you understand? Therefore, he had a lot of Shilas sent to him from all over the place. And he was a Shilas and Shubas guy. So notice, he became a halachic authority long before he was an official rabbi in the community. But that's regular halacha stuff of the four parts of the Shulchan Aruch. Now, you deal with the Shilas of political nature, like the relationship of the individual to the French state, to Napoleon, to the empire, Chal uh, Shabbos in the army, all kind of stuff that nobody ever thought of before. So it was quite a challenge. And he's the one who had to meet it. did the best he could. Uh, the culmination of this process <coughs> was when the French state tried to introduce Reform Judaism of a certain type. Not the same Reform Judaism that popped up in Germany later, but nevertheless, the French state, because which was arrogant and was riding high, and this is the Napoleonic Empire. Our hero died in the middle of the Napoleonic period. He died in 1811, and Napoleon was riding high until 1812 when he lost his army in Russia. So at the time of the last years of Raveno, Napoleon was the guy. But so, so this, but so, so that. He could do it every one of the people. And Jews were scared to death. <clears throat> Napoleon himself was pretty anti-Semitic. And Napoleon was a nationalist. So he basically wanted to have Clarkite. He wasn't the type of guy that a from Duke could shoot the bull with the way he would like to shoot the bull and say, and fudge the answers. Are you French? Are you Jewish? Are you loyal to me? You're not loyal to me? And so forth and so on. And so suffice it to say that in 1806, when Napoleon was really riding high, because he won the Battle of Austerlitz in uh, 1805, and the Battle of Jena and Auerstein in 1806, he was riding high. So it was in that time that Napoleon um, sent his famous questions to the Chachme Israel, meaning that he drew up a list of leading Jews, Richie Riches plus big rabbis, and I'll say it again, Richie Rich types plus big rabbis, and he wanted to get Clarkite on, you know, where these guys stand, okay? And he sent a famous list of, of 12 questions. Uh, I must have talked about it before. You know, I did a uh, a uh, lecture series of videos a number of years ago about Jews and revolutions, where I went through all this in detail, okay? But uh, it, one question was, is a Jew allowed to have polygamy? According to Jewish law, another one is about divorces. You know, what are the grounds for divorce? And uh, if if you get a get, does that mean you divorced and the hell with the French law, which is the case? Or But that would be an insult to French law. Another question was, is a Jew allowed to marry a guy? Or is the, uh, or is the Jewish religion prohibit that? Which would sound like they're anti-integration. <laughs> Another question was, do the Jews consider themselves Mamish Frenchmen? Right? Uh, let me talk about that for a second. What, the Reform movement, as it developed in its various forms in the 1800s, in its various manifestations, 
Germany was one way, but there are other countries that are the other way, and I'm talking about the Napoleonic idea of reform, even though he didn't use that term. Um, the reform movements had certain things in common, but certain things not in common. The Napoleonic movement never said, declare uh, Shabbos to be bottle, or Kashras to be bottle. In other words, go be over on Mrs. Mysius. That's the product of the German reform. But the French reform, as Napoleon wanted it, had to do with a number of other issues, especially the issue of, of identity, which is really fascinating, and maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. And it's tricky because we live in modern times, it's hard to get this down straight. Long ago, in the, in the times of traditional Judaism, before, let's say, the 1800s, if you ask the Jew, who are you and what's your nationality? Say, I'm Jewish. Ah, you live in Poland. You live in Prussia. You live in Prague. You live in Rome. You live in Istanbul and so forth. Yeah, that's where I live. But you ask me my nation is I'm Jewish. The Goyim relate to me on that basis. And I relate to myself and the world on that basis. And so that's the autonomous course of communities of yesteryear. You may be Jewish. I mean, you may be living in Chavez in, uh, in Berlin but you're not a Berlin citizen, you're a member of the Jewish community Berlin, right? And the Geisha state allows you to live there, or doesn't, based on whatever its own perception of self-interest is. So the Jew at that time was very comfortable with saying, Ich bin Ayid, and that's who I am, period. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm not loyal to the country I'm living in, and that doesn't mean that I don't try to help the king or the state that I'm in, and of course I pay taxes and obey the laws, but... If you ask who I am, my identity is I'm Jewish and I'm not a guy. So a Jew living in France before the French Revolution would say I'm Jewish, I'm not French. Uh, I'm a Jew living in France. Now, um, there's a little bit of a fudging of that in the 18th century, but that's generally the way it went. I mean, for crying out loud, ask the Vilna Gong, are you a Polak? Because you live in Vilna, which is part of the kingdom of Poland and Lithuania. He wouldn't even know what you're talking about, you see? This issue of identity was something that the reform movement everywhere uh, targeted and said a Jew is not a member of a separate nation to the exclusion of another nation. Jewish is just a religion, but as far as identifying on a national basis, you're a member of the nation in which you reside. So it knows the reform movement more than indeed for a German Jew to say, I'm a German. That's my nationality. I don't have a Jewish nationality. I have a Jewish religion, but not a Jewish nationality. That's why the Reform Movement was against and prayers for the Zionism and prayers for the restoration of Mashiach and all the rest of it. To them, the notion was that Jewish should be like Christian. It is a matter of religious forms, how you relate to God. Um, this was uh, how should I put it, a big agenda of Napoleon. He wanted the Jews to say, Listen, we, since we the French are giving you equal rights, we don't want you to take advantage of us to say I'm going to continue to be a member of the Jewish nation, another French nation, but take advantage of the fact that I have French citizenship and uh, use that for my benefit, but not for the French benefit, the way, for example, a Chassid today might possibly view secular citizenship. It's just something we take advantage of, right? Doesn't identify with the nation. So Napoleon wanted to get the Pam Mole that the Jewish leaders throughout one of them and the other should say, 
No, 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 no. We are giving up our separate identity as Jews as being a member of a Jewish nation. And we're going to say we're Frenchmen. We just have the Jewish religion. Uh, and that's why Napoleon asked the question, do you consider Frenchmen like your brothers or like strangers? Which means, do you identify as French? Now, to be perfectly honest, that's a big yesod. It was like an ichor of Judaism. Uh, an ichor of Judaism. That you're a member of the Jewish uh, nationality and not another one. Now, you and I don't operate that way today. If you live in America, for example... You say, I'm an American citizen, I really am. Mostly Jewish. You know, you don't try to slice it neatly. But um, in European countries, America is very liberal. European countries, especially France, they always said to make up your mind. Are you in the Orioles or in the Yankees? Are you in this team or are you in that team? Can't be in both. Can't be in both. So uh, Napoleon, as they say before, asked these 12 questions. What's about story with Ribis? And, uh, you know, are you supposed to treat Frenchmen well or not? Those kind of dina things of this nature. <clears throat> now, as they say, he sent these uh, these questions out there to, uh, uh, what do you call it, 110 uh, leading Jews from the French Empire. In other words, from France, from Italy, from the Rhineland, and so on and so forth, to get answers. Uh, <clears throat> they had to consult with each other and this and that and the other. I think they came already to a conference in Paris, is what happened, in 1806, and there they consulted to give joint answers. As I said before, there were Richie Richards on it, and then there were these um, Rabbanim. The reason they wanted the Rabbanim was so you have gravitas. If all you have is just a bunch of Richie Riches, so then they would sell out the Jewish part, and the rabbis would denounce it, and people say, these are a bunch of just traitors to the Jewish religion, a bunch of rich, rich skunks, which they were, which they were, and it doesn't recognize anything. Imagine if you take some rich, powerful Jew today and say, you get to define the Jewish religion. I mean, they only care about their own pocketbook, you know. So they want to have some gravitas, says so you need some rabbonim on there. Now, they tried to pick what I would say is left-wing rabbis, Avi Weiss types. And they did. They did. But on the other hand, they also had to have a couple of heavy hitters to give it a gravitas. You know, like you say, a couple of real postkin. But it was only to provide a fig leaf to give some kind of legitimacy to the left-wing answers that they were expecting and demanding. I would say, if you look at the list of 100 and whatever people, that offhand, I can think of only two names that were Rabbanim, Rabbanim, Gedolim, you know, post-gim, the real thing. One was David Zinsheim, who I talked about before, the Yad David, who became indeed the chief rabbi of France. He didn't want to be there. He was schlepped into this, and he became the head guy. And he was a posik. He was a Talmud Chacham. And the other guy was our hero, Bishmol, the coin of Modena. The thing is, David Zinsheim lived in France, in Paris by that time, and he attended and presided over the session, where they gave answers, where they kind of shot the bull with Napoleon as best as they could. Because that's what they did. They just shot the bull as best as they could. If it was up to the left-wingers, they would just totally give in. The right-wingers tried to modify it as best they could. In the Hespit for David Sinsheim, the Chassam Sofer, you look in the Russias, 
was Mospinum when he died in 1812, and he said, he said he was a hero, he was in bad circumstances, he did the best he could. So whatever he did, L'shem Shemayim, if the answer is 100% Hatsi-Tatsi, it's not his fault. <clears throat> I think I told you once, when I was very young, the chief rabbi of Moscow, Rabbi Levin, in the 60s, visited America, and some groups were boycotting him and protesting him because he had said things pro-Russian, anti-Israel. And I remember the Gadol, the Moses Gadol, like Moshe Feinstein, you know, said, get off the guy's back. He's in Soviet Russia. He's got to say what they tell him to say. It's not what he thinks. So you can't go and protest against somebody like that. You know. So if you keep that in mind, you'll understand what happened. The only difference is the following. Uh, and this is where history matters. David Zinsheim was in France and because he was a big rabbi, so he became the president of the session. And therefore, he dealt with all these richy rich guys and these Avi Weiss type rabbis on a daily basis and was subject to tremendous pressure from them as well as from the, from the French government officials, Count Molay and the others. And, you know, there were like threats that if the Jews didn't give the right answers, it'll be bad for them. And Napoleon was the type of guy who could do it if he felt like it. You know, he was riding high at that time, was the peak of his power. And you didn't know what the heck the guy would do. And so you had to be very responsible and very diplomatic in how you arrange your answers. Not to give in on the Torah part, but not to um, be chutzpahdik or, you know, overly assertive on the other. It was a fine line. The other big guy was our hero, but he was like 86 at the time. If he was born in 1723... And we're talking about 1806, 1807, so he's, I guess, 83, 84 years old. So he said, I can't schlep. No, because of my age. I can't schlep to Paris. So I can only write to you my answers. He had his mind till he died. So he was vigorous mentally. But he couldn't physically go there. And because he couldn't go there, he wrote his own answers, which he sent in Hebrew, he sent to Paris. Uh, and they're very interesting to read. Uh, after St. Gideon, who's sponsoring today, he just got me from wherever it was, on uh, some from some journal, Professor Rosenthal, Yuda Rosenthal, who is, used to be a historian of Italian Jewry, he found in the JTS Library, the Conservative in New York, uh, a, a uh, manuscript of the 12 answers that our hero sent to Paris, to Napoleon's uh, uh, tribunal, and he published them. That's kind of cute. He published them. And I think back in 1950 or so. And uh, it's very interesting because, first of all, they're in, they're in rabbinic Hebrew. And second of all, they're kind of lumpish. In other words, let's put it this way. He was smart enough not to say anything stupid, but he didn't beat around the bushes too much either. And to tell you the truth, it's kind of, I mean, he gives full sources. Like he said, the Ramah says this. But we don't follow that, and we go like the rush, and the Shulchan says this, and all that. Yeah, it's 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 and it, there's a Gemara here and a Gemara there. So I can't imagine how he thought the French would ever be able to read what he's writing. He wrote in the Hebrew, you know, about questions of Ravina Gershom and uh, you know, polygamy and Gitin and all the rest of it. And you know, Napoleon asked, Are the Jews allowed to charge each other interest? Are they allowed to charge Goyim interest? Believe you me, since I'm Sanhedrin, they had the mama shoot the bull on this. And he says straight out, I mean, notice, he didn't, 
he didn't fool anybody. He gave very straightforward answers. He says, you can't charge a Jew interest because we're all brothers. You can't charge a Frenchman interest because we're not brothers or fellow citizens, and so on and so forth. So I guess he figured, I'm 84 years old, to heck with it, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's the only thing I can imagine. Um, and his word didn't matter that much because the main guys were in Paris, and that's where they wrote up the answers in French, you see? Uh, so it's very interesting to compare them. There's no question in my mind that David Zinsheim made a small corner of Munden exchange correspondence. I saw it once, I can't remember now. I pulled out my book by Professor Cochin, The Making of Western Jewelry, which is uh, an interesting book, which has a chapter on the on the proceedings in the uh, Sanhedrin, all the rest of it. But I couldn't find the part that I'm looking for, which would have the the correspondence between uh, the David Zinsheim on the one hand and our hero on the other. Um, but one thing is clear, and that is these guys were in bad situations. You know, these guys were in bad situations. You know, the one weird thing, looking through these answers, the one weird thing that I saw, which I consider Mama's very weird, is that our hero, in responding to the question about the get, so, you know, Napoleon wanted to hear that it's the French get uh, divorce that counts. That's what we want to see. Otherwise, you're making fun. You know, you're saying, from the secular point of view, you're saying, to hell with the secular law. If a person has a get, kadasa kadin, they're divorced, and uh, it doesn't matter what the, what, what the Geisha law thinks. Which is the usual way that people used to look at it. But in the case of Napoleon Sanhedrin, because what happened was they gave the answers. Um, Napoleon approved of them. And the following year, he gathered again in a formal session, which he called the Sanhedrin, and he attended the session, and they all issued it like Taconis. That's all a bunch of bull, but, you know, the French Jews, believe it or not, took it very seriously. I don't want to get into that right now. Uh, and these Taconis of the Paris Sanhedrin, you know, were considered like binding or something like that, even though there's that's ridiculous. That's part of the 19th century history of Western Jewry. Now, um, in the context of that, when Napoleon, I just remember this, when Napoleon asked them, what's the story with the get and the civil divorce, they basically said like this, oh, the Jewish law, of course, goes by the civil divorce, it's just that we also require a religious divorce. So that's a BS way of getting around it. You know, in other words, of course we need the civil divorce, um, but the Jewish law also requires, in addition to that, a get, which makes it sound like we totally respect the civil law. It's just an extra little shtick, that's all, nothing nothing to, to lose sleep over. Uh, that's how I remember how they, how, how they, how they did it. Uh, our hero says something weird. He says that you do need both. Listen close to what I'm saying. First should come the civil divorce, like the Paris Sanhedrin said, and then should come to get it, not the other way around. Now, not because we want to kiss up to the secular state, but because he gave a halachic reason, and that is the following. If I'm divorcing a wife, but we don't have the civil divorce yet, that means in the eyes of the civil law, which is in the eyes of the state, we're still married, then it turns out then the get was was lacking, it was chaser, in one of the key areas it has to be not chaser in, 
The get has to be Dovra Kores Menilovino. Has to effectuate a complete crisis, cutting away, separation between the husband and the wife. If there's any kind of situation in which they're still connected, it's not a get. Has to be Dovra Kores Menilovino. And he said, as long as the state still considers them um, married, the get wasn't pile to effectuate a Dovra Kores Menilovino, and therefore the get's not good. So, in order to remedy that, you always have, the Masada get always has to make sure that first comes the civil divorce. So, in the eyes of the state, they're completely divorced. And then when you do the get, the get will, will, will separate whatever is left, which is the Torah marriage. And once that get is done, there is nothing connecting the husband and the wife. And therefore, it won't be a problem of Dabra Kores Ben Olavino. That's very weird. Right? I mean, don't you agree? That's very weird. And we don't go like that. And, um,. What it really is, I mean, I, I just want you to think about the consequence of this. Suppose a guy got a get, and only later came the, the, the civil divorce. So if you go like our hero, the guy was like, well, they're not divorced yet. They're not divorced yet. So, um, you know, well, he, she'll, she'll, she'll say like this. I mean, I, I'm just making this up. Uh, there's a, a husband and a wife, and they got a get, and then came the civil divorce. So she was like, I can marry Cohen. Why? Because I never, the, the get that I need had to come after the civil divorce. I never got the civil divorce. You, you know what I'm saying? My husband died after the civil divorce, let's say. So, ah, you got to get before the civil divorce? Yeah, but that get didn't count because it, the civil divorce came later. That's very far from the din. There are many other possible problems that could have popped out of that. So I, I don't get that part, right? On the other hand, he was a great man, so he must add his uh, spars. I'm serious. I'm simply trying to indicate to you he lived in very unusual times when he was born, and most of his life, you never imagine these kind of questions ever showing up. Uh, and so here we have somebody who all of his life, as best as I can tell, was a Roman Modena for all these years, and still kept the yeshiva, even in the Napoleonic era. Still kept the yeshiva, although it must have guys must have left. I, I don't know. But as far as I'm aware, he still maintained the yeshiva till his death. Uh, he's very devoted to the students, as you can imagine, as I said, we didn't have family of his own. The students are very devoted to him. You can tell by the way they write about him. So he must have been a very nice person and the type of, of Rebbe with whom you form a strong bond. You, you can see that from, from the Talmudim. Uh, they write that he was a tremendous speaker. Now remember, he could speak in Italian, he could speak in in, uh, in Hebrew or anything like that. He was a Sephardi. I only know that because he signs himself Sephardi to Arsat. Uh, the communion Modena, I don't think, was Sephardic. I think it was Italian, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, he does talk about issues about duchening every day, which sounds like a Sephardic type thing. And he says in Italy, everybody duchens every Shabbos, all, all, all three uh, types. The Ashkenaz, the Sephardi, and the Italiani, which is which is interesting. Um, he is Italian in the sense, if you look in his chubas, there's a you know, can you duchen if there's a guy present in the building, <laughs> in in the shul, which is not something we never even think about in America. And he says you can't. And uh, in Italy, they wouldn't even take a safer Torah out if there was somebody not Jewish in the, in the shul. I remember hearing years ago from a, a tour guide, I don't know if it's true or not, that when the Pope, um, John Paul II, visited 
the synagogue as a goodwill gesture, and it was a goodwill gesture. They t- secretly they took out all the safer tourists from behind the Arn Kodesh, uh, which is a good thing he didn't say. Let's open up and see what you got there. That would have been embarrassing. In America, you don't have such a sensibility. I've heard of many shows, barrel wine, the others, you know, groups come in and you show them what's in the show. They shouldn't think there's something devious and nefarious there. So he was very Italian in that in, in that kind of a way. Uh, already by the time he was a rob in the 1780s, in his, in, in his 60s, he begins publishing uh, selections of his chubas. He probably had thousands. And, um, you know, he, he only published part of them. He says, he's calling it Zeremus, because it's, it's actually very pathetic. It's very pathetic. The pathos. He says he's calling it Zeremus because, uh, let me see, where is it over here? Because he said, this, this is my children, you know what I mean? Here it is, I found it. This is pathetic. Amr Machaber, believe Nishbar Benitke Medaber, speaking with a broken heart. He named us a Kanti, I'm getting old. I'm left alone. Maybe his wife was gone. I didn't have the mazel to have children. When will I do something for myself? Notice I'm not going to have somebody say cottage for me. Maybe if I publish my my chubas, my chedushim. Maybe people will say over my Torah when I'm gone, and that will take the place of the Kaddish, so to speak. I mean, isn't that, isn't that very pathetic? Um, you know, very moving. And, uh, and he quotes a famous Medish in Noach, where it says, If somebody passed away without have children, who mates her bochi, he's crying. He knows he gets to the Shemaim, he's crying. It's a medrash. Hashem says, why are you crying? You have things better than children. Right? And when he says, who that is? Knows whatever you learned, any Torah that you learned while you were alive, that's your Kaddish. Right? That's your, that's your Paris. See, he's quoting that. And therefore, he says, Laman, the first thing I did from publishing uh, what I have. He published one in the 1780s, and that uh, one in the 1790s, and then one was published by his students after his death. After his death. So, a person like I'm talking about had a lot of Talmudim over the course of the years. And if he died in 1811, give it another 30 years or so when his students, and maybe students of Chido were still around. And, you know, kept the flame going as best as they could. But they were not able to maintain yeshivas the way he had. Conditions in Italy went through a lot of dramatic changes in the 1800s. Now it's not the time to go into that. And suffice it to say that the yeshivas fell apart. Once the yeshivas fell apart, the Yiddishkeit fell apart. It's not a question of reform or conservative like that. It's just disintegrating like happened in Prague. It just ended. There's no chinuch that you know you don't need reform or anything. It just it just falls apart. You see, and all you had was conservatism, and that lasted a generation or so. And next thing you know, the kids are totally off to their who knows where they are. It's a very sad, you know. Modena, 20, 30, 40 years after his time, fifty years, 
forget about it. I mean, that that's that that's simply the way it went, and that was true all over Italy, almost everywhere, and uh, you know it, that's why he's the last gutto that comes out. He had students and all the rest of it, but they weren't on his level, his caliber. So his Charles and Shub is called Zera Emis. That's why you know he didn't have children, so this is Zera Emis are very valuable in this regard for Italian history, plus the fact that he was a very good posse. I came across him years ago first in some historian stuff. I mean, you see him once in a while in the Piscate Shoes, but, you know, you know, you don't particularly pay attention. It's true, you know, in the Mishnah Bureau, what is it called? The uh, the, the Shari Chuba, you know, all that. He's there, but, um, and he's on Dalakalki Shokonar, you know, and he writes very clearly and very well. I used to see him in, in Moshe Samet wrote this book about or, the origins of orthodoxy. He played a big role in the fights about uh, shaving on Cholamoid, even though he shaved, but he didn't shave on Cholamoid. He was one of the guys that weighed into that. He weighed into the question of whether or not you should have delayed burials. Whatever the hot-button issues were of the late 18th century, he was a macher in, in that sort of thing. Um, like I said before, you can tell from his Shalos and Jews, he has all the Roshanim, all the Achronim. He puts always all the Achronim. It's very interesting the way he does it, but very distinctly and very short you know, in other words, in a in a, in, in a very well written way. The only thing is, you got to look it up. Problem is, there was the original print is it was only printed once, and it's not chicken scratch stuff. So you can get it on Hebrew books, but it's a pain in the neck to read, at least to me. You know, so I was very disappointed by that. And I used to tell people one of the things I'm waiting for when they ever going to come out and do the Saramis in modern print. This farm chatter told me a little while ago that their mom was finally coming out with it. A Sephardi operation, Abba Shalom. I tell you the truth, I didn't know he was Sephardi. I thought he, I actually thought he was Ashkenaz, but I see he is so Sephardi. Uh, although you wouldn't know it, you know, he poskins straight up. You know what I'm saying? You find all the uh, Ashkenazi people there together with the others. And they just started, and I ordered from Lakewood. They just, I just got in the mail. They just started publishing in a nice print uh, his stuff. So in other words, the Charles Jules Zeramis just came out in a nice square print, you know, like that. Uh, did a nice job. There was a couple of basic uh, Marmacomas, you know, the, the very extremely basic footnotes. But that's all you need for him. And uh, it's going to be three volumes, obviously, originally. Uh, so I, I guess they'll wait for three volumes to come out. This is the one on, on Archive. And uh, like I said before, both from a historical point of view and from just a regular halachic point of view, he has very, very nice shilas, and he's never so long, and they're very good. Um, they're very good, and they even have a nice maftech uh, and all the rest of it, you know, what tells you, like, what's going on in each one, and he's got a share of pilpul, he's got a share of stray halacha, and it's this, it's, and you can tell, you know, especially when he has pilpul aruch aldiriatosis in, in the Megillah, this is the shiurim he gave, you understand? Here we have an old-fashioned rabbi from yesteryear who was an av basin, and therefore he also had a yeshiva. And so here's a guy who was in basin every day, but also gave shiurim to Talmidim every day. Maybe the yeshiva wasn't a hundred guys, because I'm sure it wasn't. It's very small. But nevertheless, you have 10, 20 guys you're going back and forth with, and every time you have an issue, you teach it, and you run it by them, and you argue with them, and they argue with you. And that kachi darko shel Torah, you know, and as I said before, he's the last of the old school in Italy. 
Uh, they never recovered after him. And it's, in my opinion, it's a pleasure to read. He's just a, you know, he, he, he just writes very well. I looked through a few of them, especially this one about a Mashallah, Meretz Yisrael, you know, <laughs> for Hanukkah, you, you know, you're far away from Israel, and you know your family's lighting for you back in Israel. In the 18th century, you know, and do you have to light over here? It's, it's look, what can I tell you? It's interesting questions. It's not the totality of all the shahs, it's just it's a selection. He also apparently has a uh, Haggadah. He told me, as far as chatters, that he has a, the copies, the old uh, print and all the rest of it. Um, I imagine his Haggadah is based on his drushes. Because, again, in the old school, the robe, especially in Italy, especially in the also undertook to be a Maggid. Not every week necessarily, but fairly often. And, uh, you know, in Italy, where the people were a little more educated, you had to be more rhetorical, you had to be more elegant in the way that you did your drushes, and he certainly was. And I'm looking forward that they'll be able to finish the uh, other two volumes of the Zara MS and probably have a third volume, I suppose, a fourth volume, I mean, with the um, with the drushes and the Haggadah and all this other kind of stuff. Uh, perhaps this will have the effect, as he was saying in his Hagdama, of ma- making people acquainted with him. You know, this is his Kaddish, so to speak. Um, very tragic, personally, you know, the, about how his family situation turned out, but whatever. And um, I'll end, as I started before, which is, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know of anybody in Israel or whatever who's who's working with him. Um, it'd be perfect subject to work with, and maybe somebody has. You know, maybe somebody has. There's a lot of guys in Israel, especially, who are doing different gedolim. You know, it's a, it's a classic way of doing a, uh, a dissertation. Nothing wrong with it. And he's like so perfect for this because he got the Charles and Shuas. You'd have to do a little bit of work in Italian. You have to know Italian. You have to go to um, over there to Modena and Italy to look up in the original records. I'll tell you something weird. And that is uh, he, as I say before, was Italian. So, yes, he was in Torah, Torah, Torah. And, of course, he was up to his ears in Shasta Boskim. No question about it. No question about it. But he knew Italian. As they say, he even wrote some poetry in Italian, stuff like that. He was a clean-shaven person. If you saw him in the street, you wouldn't necessarily know who he was unless you knew who he was. And he was, the person I'm talking about was smart enough, wise enough, to always make a Kiddush Hashem. He, his Gaisha name was Ladaudio Sacerdoti. Uh, which is translated to Yishmael coin, Sacerdoti, or as you would say, Sacerdoti, uh, is a coin, you know, sacred servant. Um, and you see from the Italian records, the guy, the, even the French, they all had a very high opinion of him. Because he conducted himself in such a way that everything was a Kiddush Hashem. You know that. Everything was a Kiddush Hashem. And um, you see the Italian records speaking very highly. Now, I'll tell you the bizarre part. I saw somewhere that when he died, he was an old man, the French local government sent an armed guard, like a cavalry junk like this, as an honor guard at the funeral, which they did in a black hearse wearing black uh, armbands and junk like that. And they buried him at night. And the Italian guy said, why the heck did they bury him at night? Now, I know in the Jewish tradition, you're supposed to bury somebody as soon as possible. You get it like they do in Yerushalayim. 
I'm sure that's why they did it. Believe you me, the kind of guy he was, he did not want to have a geisha on her guard. Like I said before, he didn't want to do it if they were going in the show. He didn't want to have a geisha on her guard. He didn't want this French junk and all the rest of it. And he certainly didn't want black armbands and, and uh, bouquets. What am I talking about? You know, the, the flowers and all that kind of stuff uh, that they do over there. Because he was not into Chukas Agayim at all. Uh, isn't that weird that it's not the same thing that happened to Zinsheim. Zinsheim, but both, they're both on the Sanhedrin. Or David Zinsheim had the misfortune of being buried, still is, in a Geisha cemetery in, in Paris. Because he's a chief rabbi of France and he was a, therefore a public official. He's still there. So our hero was buried in Kevri, you saw in a Jewish cemetery. But he had a semi-Geisha cemetery, a funeral. Uh, which well, would not have been to his uh, taking at all. Anything you touch with Napoleon got you dirty. <laughs> That's what you see over here. Anything you touch with that guy left a Rosha. Um, but he didn't, you know, it wasn't what he wanted. He had to deal with the reality into which he had been thrust. So if you're interested in seeing a new Safer that's out, meaning an old Safer in a good print, and uh, with, and very, very well done, you know, if I may say so myself, uh, then you'll see, then you'll take a look at the Zara MS. I don't get any money if anybody buys it. But Yishalosin, she was there, MS, the first volume that came out over here. And uh, I see in the regular books that write about response literature, I didn't mention him. He wasn't Zelcha to get a big um, echo out there in the regular scholarship. But maybe now, in the 21st century, maybe there will be a Zara Emmis revival. We'll see about that. Anyway, I want to thank Gideon, as I said before, in Houston for sponsoring today, and also for getting me uh, some of these documents about his replies to Napoleon Sanhedrin, which aren't so easy to get a hold of. And uh, with that, I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.sponsorship.com support.rabbidavidkatz.com